Welcome, ladies and divorce professionals. You are listening to the Divorce for Wealthy Women podcast, where we dive into complex and sometimes taboo topics relating to divorce and women. Specifically, we often discuss how affluent women can maintain their lifestyles during and post-divorce. Join me as we talk to the most sought after divorce professionals across the globe and share powerful tips that you can take along with you no matter where you are in your journey. Hi, Megan. Can you say hello to the audience and listeners and tell us who you are? Hi, nice to see you. I guess not see everybody, but it's nice to be here is the best way to say it. I'm Megan McCoy, and I was trained as a family therapist, but during my doctoral program, I discovered, like many of us, that financial well-being really is essential for our mental health and our relationship well-being. Since then, I have focused specifically on that. So I now work in a financial planning department at Kansas State and really focus on financial therapy or that intersection between our mental health, relational health, and our financial health. Okay, tell us what that means, because I love these topics, of course, and financial therapy and money coaching and behavioral finance, but we're talking to an audience that I don't think loves and breathes and lives this every day, you know? (laughs) It's so funny to you say that because I always call myself a reformed money avoidant individual because 10 years ago as a therapist, I wanted to save the world. And I felt yes. guilty taking money from clients. Yes. I was a hot mess with my finances and I did not <laughs> talk about it, did not like thinking about it, just avoided it. So the fact that like now I live and breathe this stuff is just a testament that when we frame finances in a way as an opportunity for happiness rather than money being the vehicle to happiness, it, it's that like slight shift really does help us so very much be able to approach the topic in a healthier way. So financial therapy is a group of mental health professionals and financial practitioners that all work together and try to learn from each other to best address our clients' overall needs. There's lots of similar words out there, client psychology, financial psychology, financial therapy. We're all kind of aiming for this thing that numbers are not just Excel spreadsheets, but really, like Jeffrey Dew once said, that numbers are the object which we project our deepest dreams, hopes, and fears upon. And that's where I see financial therapy coming in. Ooh, <laughs> that's a good quote. I can go into, I mean, my goodness, we could talk about how then the money was in divorce yeah. and the emotions. Yeah. Tell me your thoughts on that. Let's just go there. Yes. The most famous grief theory that you guys have probably talked about before, the five stages of grief where you go through denial and anger. Ironically, the creator only believed that passing a death was the only way you apply her model. But in reality, there are so many times where we experience grief without physically losing someone. And divorce is such a great example because not only do we have to grieve the death of our relationship, we have to grieve the future that we had been thinking about for years and maybe even decades. And so as we envision our new self in this new future, money is going to play a role. Like what goals have to be pushed back? What goals have to change? What goals have to be done with someone else? A lot of those um, decisions have a financial undertone to them. Every single client I have ever worked with, it is absolutely what you just said. I mean, it's grieving the life that you had planned and would have had and the finances all change. It doesn't matter if you have 15 billion, it doesn't matter what the amount is. 
I mean, it is that, I like how you said that. That's so helpful. (laughs) A book that is a little dated out and has other flaws in it, but it was so great at times called Why Married People Are Happier, Healthier, and More Financially Satisfied or something like that. And really it is so much about pooling resources and sharing resources. And so divorce can have a happy ending, but the transition from the pooled resources to doing it solo is a hard transition, like you said, no matter how much money you have in the account. Mm. Well, I'm wondering, you have been in the family therapy realm for so long. I'm wondering, <laughs> when you see couples, do they bring up money issues or do you have to pull it from them? Like, how does that work? Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> I have to pull it out of them. Well, some, you know what's funny? There is a slight gender thing that is evolving. But when I first started out, I was the only financial therapist advertised in South Carolina. There might have been other financial therapists at the time, but my private practice was the only one that came up on searches as someone who did financial therapy. And the only people who called me for financial therapy at that point, and this is 10 years ago, were men. So it was mm. men were more comfortable using financial therapy as a conduit to the relational counseling. Women at the time, and I'm sorry to talk so binary, but women at the time were so much more likely to call me for relational counseling and then money be a byproduct of it. There's actually a study by, I believe it's Rabel and Ford out of University of Georgia, which found the same thing, that men were much more comfortable talking about finances than relational issues. Mm. So what do you see in your practice or over your years of experience? What do you see is a good opportunity or help for clients who may not know or patients. I don't know what you, what do you call your clients? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's so much good things out there for money to bring people closer. The problem is because of our money taboo, the only times couples talked about money when was when there was a scarcity issue, when there wasn't enough or when there was something pressing that they had to be decided on. And so it's almost like they condition us like Pavlovian dogs to think every financial conversation is going to be talking about a scarce resource that we need to parse out and find power, control, autonomy in. And that stinks because then we're so conditioned that it's hard to break. And my biggest advice for everyone is to try to counter condition yourself by having some pleasant conversations. Like my favorite activity is once a month or whenever we have a chance to go on a date My partner and I, we buy a Powerball ticket and we sit there over dinner and talk about like, what would we spend our day? What passions would we pursue? What would we do less of or more of in our lives if money was not the object? So it's not about going to a desert island. It's like, where will we get our intellectual stimulation? What freedom would we have? And those conversations are so lovely that when we have to enter into a harder financial conversation, at least we have this backbone of some positive times together talking about money. Megan, I love that because (laughs) whenever someone says the word Powerball or lottery, I have my own bias. (laughs) I think (laughs) (laughs) my heart almost just stopped and I tensed up and I came up with all of these heuristics, like everything I think of when I think of lottery people (laughs) who buy the tickets, like I have my judgment. (laughs) And I'm so glad there's no money taboo in this conversation. We could talk about this and my judgments, that's not correct. So I'm so glad you pointed out if you can have a fun conversation around the lottery. If we were doing the lottery in the hopes of replacing our income, that's bad. 
reading yes. lotteries as a date entryway. So I'm like, I would pay a dollar to go on a date. <laughs> That's so cute. Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. I hope someone does that who's listening today. I might even do that. That's fun. That's something I've not done before. <laughs> Maybe it's time. I've always said, yeah, going on a fun date and just spending only 15 minutes, like keeping it short and sweet. But I like your idea. Do you have any other fun activities or ideas or just thoughts that you've worked on with clients you know, or in your own life? Another the one that I've seen a lot that I really like and we do in our own relationship is the idea of making a meeting to name your bank accounts. So we have a lot of bank accounts, like they don't have a ton of money in each one, but they all have a different purpose. Like some of them are bill pay accounts. Some of them are rainy day accounts, but a lot of them are actually like goal accounts. So we have our paycheck sparsed into these eight accounts. We have and each account is a named savings one and savings two, because I don't want to make sacrifices at H&M to go to savings one. Instead, they're named things like Europe 2025 or new car 2024. You know, they're named very detailed based on our financial goals. And so we often will, once we've hit a goal and cleaned out account, we will meet and talk about like, what is our new account name going to be? What are we working towards? What are we pursuing and why are we bothering to save? Because I feel savings for savings sake isn't as fun as savings for dreams. <laughs> this is great. I have used this as well. This is a great technique for anyone, again, listening, is having a specific goal on that account and putting it on your phone, seeing that goal. Okay, if you want to do Bora Bora with your children post-divorce, then set that goal, set the date. What does it look like? Dream it up. Love that. Put it on your screensaver. I don't know if that's a thing anymore on laptops. I don't use that, but your password would be so fun. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Okay. I feel like, so I have a book coming out. I don't know why, but I feel like you probably have been planning a book or writing a book, or I know you do a ton of book reviews. And you write a lot for different articles that are very famous. But tell me more about what are you doing project-wise? So I'm working on a really cool project right now called The Psychology of Financial Planning with John Grable, Michelle Kruger, and Jamie Lynn Byron. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be really for either practicing financial planners or financial planning students to really understand how our, our thoughts, our values, our beliefs impact our financial decision-making, but also how to borrow counseling-like skills and apply that to financial planning so your clients actually get the best services. They can hear you better. They can foster trust and commitment to you. So that's a really exciting book. My goal in the next couple of years is I really, really want to write on financial infidelity. I'm so... Ooh. Yes. <laughs> talk about the minority. <laughs> Let's do a podcast episode on that. Yeah. Ooh. I think financial infidelity and divorce is a terrible time, but it is often a time where financial infidelity comes to the surface. Another time is in estate settlements. That's when financial Yes, I saw that all the time. Yeah, so financial infidelity, for those who haven't heard that term before, is lies you tell to your partner about money. There's some disagreement around there. Like some believe that financial infidelity takes an intentional trying to hide something or lying to your partner. I find financial infidelity should be defined more broadly as keeping secrets or being a lack of transparency with your financial partner. Because I think those littler indiscretions like rounding down or not telling your partner you went shopping, 
those little indiscretions are actually a sign of something bigger in the relationship. So if they can get resolved right away, the relationship won't degrade. Like for instance, I have been guilty of financial infidelity like most of us in the past. Often it's because I'm either shameful for what I'm buying or I don't feel like I have enough power in the relationship or I feel guilty for treating myself. Like these underlying things are things that fall out in the relationship in other ways, right? Like if you don't feel like you have enough power in your relationship to buy something for yourself, you probably don't have enough power in the relationship to ask your partner to help you more with the household or you don't have enough power to express your needs and wants and values that so your partner can't need it. And so I think financial infidelity or financial transparency is such a great little, what is it called? Canary in the coal mine moment, where if we can be more open about it in our culture, then couples can get the help they need earlier before that things kind of pile up. I love that. I think it should be broader as well because the little secrets, it is showing that it is, there's more to that and it's fixed it sooner than people don't have to get divorced and then I can go out of business and just do financial planning. That's okay with me. This is a great career path, but you know, we don't need to have divorce in this world if we can avoid it somehow. But financial infidelity, maybe we do another podcast on that because that is huge. I see that way too often. And I did in my past practice of wealth management with estate planning, beneficiaries, trustees coming involved, absolutely is a huge thing. And I love that you are doing the book on the psychology of financial planning because I just got my specialist designation with the Conses. Oh, and it was I love fun. Their program. So yep. Wonderful. And Charles. Yeah. So wonderful. Okay. So any last tips before we end here today? I like to keep it short and clean and fun. Just simple. I just hope that people reframe money as the vehicle to happiness and instead see money as an opportunity for happiness. And we know from research that money provides the opportunity to give to others, to have experiences, and to have small little pleasures that we can be grateful for. I hope that people recognize that if they do those three things, give to others, spend experiences, and buy simple little pleasures and savor them, that money will provide the opportunity for happiness. But otherwise, it can be a vehicle for frustration and grief. I am bursting with joy on the inside right now because everything you're saying is exactly what I love talking about. So this was almost for me. So I hope clients and listeners and divorce professionals get a lot out of this. But I know I did. So (laughs) selfishly, it's like when you volunteer and it's actually you get way more out of it than you expect. So it's like selfish. Thank you for being here today. (laughs) So glad to have you on. And let's do another one on financial infidelity in the future, you know, maybe in a year from now or six months. And okay, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining another episode with me, your host, Olivia Summerhill. Until the next episode, visit www.summerhillfirm.com for a discreet way to find helpful resources that can help bring you clarity to your divorce journey.